If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of 1 Timothy. This morning we begin a new study, and we will be in that for the foreseeable future as we work our way through this letter of Paul. Before we get into the text, and as we're singing All Creatures of Our God and King, which is one of my favorite songs, one of the best lines in that, in that hymn is <laughs> that he takes away, Christ has defeated every sin. He's defeated every sin. And I want us to take to heart, sometimes we get lost in sin patterns. It happens to everybody. We get in seasons where we indulge the desires of the flesh. But we have to be reminded that even in those seasons of war with the flesh that Romans 7 speaks so, so clearly about, that Christ genuinely has defeated every sin. And so what does that mean? It means two things, really. One it means that you are not condemned if you are in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you know what else it means? That means that you have the strength of the Holy Spirit within you to say no to that sin. And I'm telling you, we don't always say no to the sin, but we have the capacity in Christ to, to disbelieve the lies of Satan, to disbelieve the lies of our flesh, and say no to that sin. Why? Because Christ has defeated every sin. All the burdens of that have been laid on him. Oh, praise him. Hallelujah. So as we live our lives, we need to keep that in mind. Well, this morning we start a new study in the book of 1 Timothy. Perhaps it is a very familiar book to you. Maybe you've studied it before. Maybe you haven't. Maybe um, you've read through it. But it is a compelling book for a number of different reasons, which will become clear as we make our way through the study of 1 Timothy. It deals with a lot of cultural issues. It deals with church issues. It deals with personal issues. And so in that way, it becomes a valuable tool for us as we think about how do we live out the precepts of the gospel? How do we live as Christians in a world that is post-Christian? How do we live out truth in a world that sees truth let me say this, how do we live out objective truth in a world that sees truth as relative? And actually, First Timothy answers all those questions. It addresses all these things. And so when we're looking at this, so, so often people kind of look at it as merely Paul's instructions to a young man and how he should lead a church. And it, I mean, it kind of is that, but it's so much more than that. It's so much bigger than that, and it is a fitting follow-up as we've just gone through the book of Jude. It is a fitting follow-up because if you look after the first two verses, what is the very first thing Paul tells Timothy? Uh, he says, warning against false teachers. You will find this in every book that Paul writes. Every book in the New Testament just about deals with what happens when false teachers come in. And we live in a world where false teaching is prevalent, where people will masquerade as genuine Christians under a guise of being light, but what they're doing is they're working in darkness and death. They're working in lies and falsehood. And so this morning, we're going to have an introduction to the book of 1 Timothy. We're really only going to look at the first two verses, and that's not normally my pattern, but when I bring, bring us into a book, I like to start out the where, the why, the how, and the what, kind of is what we're going to look at this morning. So really, without further delay, let's turn our attention now to these first two passages in 1 Timothy, these first two verses, as we begin our study this morning of this magnificent book. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible Word, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So, in the reading of God's Word, may He add His blessing. Pray with me, please. Father, 
this short passage packs a punch. It has so much depth and truth in it as it prepares us to receive the rest of the letter. It is the appetizer to the meal. And so, Father, as we receive it this morning, use it to strengthen us, to build character, to transform our hearts, and to give us boldness in your grace. This through Christ we pray. Amen. There's a Scottish, Scottish theologian. His name was P.T. Forsyth. He was from the 19th century. He said this, probably his most famous quote ever. The first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. The first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. When you think about that, the first duty of every soul is to find its freedom, not its, or is to find its master, not its freedom, that runs very much counter to what we hear so much in our world. The goal of the soul is to find its freedom so you can express, so you can explore, so you can be who you are, so that you can, you know, follow your heart. Is there freedom in Christ? Yeah, we're going to get to that. Is there freedom in the gospel? Yeah. But we are not free in the sense that we have no master. What uh, Forsyth was getting at is that our first duty is to recognize and be firmly established in the Lordship of Christ. There is no freedom outside of the Lordship of Christ. I once lived outside of the Lordship of Christ, and I'm going to put this in quotes, free, but I was bound to every manner of addiction, every manner of immorality that you can think of. And so when you think of life outside of the Lordship of Christ, you're not free, you are bound in death. And so it means something that our first duty is to recognize that we are established in the Lordship of Christ so that we can truly be free. It's a beautiful paradox, the way that it works. So often we are consumed with the, or Christians in general are consumed with the freedom aspect of their faith, what they're free to do. They do forget that there's a genuine duty that we have to love and to serve and to submit. And those things in and of themselves are very freeing when we are living under the proper authority structure. We are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of works so that no man may boast, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. But we are saved, you and I, you and me, to live in submission to Christ, to live in subservience to Christ, to work out the will of Christ. So in that sense, you and I, we are saved, we are saved to serve. And Paul is very passionate about the Lordship of Christ. He brings it up here already in the very introduction. The salutation is what it's called. He brings this up, and you read every letter that Paul writes in the New Testament. Well, well, that's the only place he writes letters, but uh, every letter he writes, you are going to find some place where he deals with the Lordship of Christ because he understands that we have to get that right first. If we are not living in the Lordship of Christ, beloved, we're astray. There is no life for the Christian outside of the Lordship of Christ. We're astray once we get out from under that covering. So when we look at 1 Timothy, this is the first of three letters, First and 2 Timothy and Titus, uh, known as the pastoral epistles. That's what they're called. Um, they were not originally called that. They were not called that till much later. So Paul wrote two letters to Timothy and one to Titus. And they're called pastoral because of the charge that Titus and Timothy received from Paul and ultimately by God to bring truth to bring sound teaching into the church. 
And so in this first letter to Timothy, Paul is charging Timothy with several things to do. I won't list them all, but here's just a few. He's saying to Timothy, make sure that doctrine and public worship are orderly and sound. So he talks about doctrine. He'll talk about worship and prayer and how and when we pray. He says, make sure there's a proper process for how you select elders and deacons. Make sure the local body, that local body, like we're a local body here in Gainesville, make sure the local body understands what it means to care for each other and how that should look, what it shouldn't be, and what it should be. This is very practical, but also very helpful. Because if you want to know what a local church should look at, you read these pastoral epistles, and it gives you a lot of philosophy that informs how we practice. And it also gives you practical uh, 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 commands. But Paul is shepherding Timothy in this way so that Timothy could impart this to faithful men who would again continue to lead the church. So he's reminding Timothy, and I would say even us here, that the gospel, the whole book of 1 Timothy reminds us that the gospel, and and I keep using that word, and I'm going to define it here in a moment, but the gospel brings real change to our lives that has a ripple effect. In other words, we don't just receive and believe and that's good. We receive, we believe, and then we live. And we do things in a specific way, not because it's, it's pragmatic or it's expedient. Oftentimes, the things that God calls us to do are not the most pragmatic or the most expedient, but they are right. And so 1 Timothy is challenging us, hey, if you've believed the gospel, it's made a change in your mind and heart, that should be evident in how you conduct yourself and how you conduct yourself in worship. And so when the writing of this letter, just a little bit of history here very briefly, we know that Timothy was at Ephesus when he received this letter. We know that Timothy was not ultimately the pastor of the church at Ephesus, but for whatever reason, Paul had sent him to Ephesus to to get some things done. And so Timothy was there when he received the letter. And Paul sent him there with the charge to essentially combat false teaching and establish sound doctrine and practice. Kind of already mentioned that. But we know that Timothy was young. How do we know that? Well, because Paul instructs him not, not, to not let anyone despise his youth. Paul also instructs him to flee youthful passions, giving us some sense that Timothy was a younger man. So we know that. We also know that Timothy struggled with timidity. And Paul encouraged him, be bold. Don't be ashamed. Be firm. Be strong. Be courageous. We also know that Timothy struggled with health issues. He had uh, stomach issues. Paul reminded him, drink a little wine with your stomach to help your digestion or whatever the case might have been. So what we're looking at, if if you take those descriptions to heart, looking at a man who struggled with timidity, a man who was young, a man who had health problems, you're already seeing a pattern here that's hopeful to you and me. We're looking at Timothy not as Superman, not as some sort of moral hero, not as some sort of man of great strength, but a young man, a weak man, an ailing man who had one hope. The Spirit of the living God was in him, and so he could be bold in spite of his weakness. So as God wants to build His church, beloved, He doesn't want to build His church with people who come in and they bring all their strength. He wants to take us who are weak and broken and say, let my strength shine through you. That's exactly what's going to happen in the ministry of Timothy at the church in Ephesus as he executes the charges of Paul. 
And so with that in mind, and in considering this introduction that we've just read, there's one idea I want for us to see in our t- couple verses this morning, and it's this, that the Father and the Son give us salvation and hope. That the Father and the Son give us salvation and hope. Now, within these first two verses, you see twin themes that are going to run all the way through this letter. The twin themes of command and blessing. Of command and blessing. Paul talks about the command of God, that his apostleship is by a command of God, and he looks at Timothy and says, also, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, you have great blessing. And so these twin themes, these kind of twin pillars are what this letter is built on, the commands of God and then the blessings of God. And so God gives commands, and he blesses us with the capacity to live under a yoke that is easy, as Jesus would say in Matthew 11, and a burden that is light because of the blessing itself. And so when we, when we look here and we think about salvation, we think about hope, the two things that the human heart yearns for is to truly be saved by God, to realize its full humanity and having that relationship restored, and to live in a place of hope and not despair. That's, I want to live in a place of hope. I'm at my weakest and worst when I give in to despair, assuming that I have no hope in a moment, but see, God the Father, God the Son, they can save, and they do give hope precisely because of their authority over all creation. Because they are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, is the, the Godhead is the only entity in the world that can save as far as the curse is found, and that can give hope to a heart that is filled with despair. And it's precisely because they have the authority to do so. Well, as Paul opens, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. Paul identifies himself as the sender, so that's important. The reason I'm even saying that is because I was telling Gardner before the message this morning that it's just kind of mind-boggling that about in the 19th century, the German uh, higher criticism tried to fall all over themselves and do all kinds of gymnastics to talk about how Paul was not the author to this letter. I mean, examining like the definite article in the Greek and say, this is inconsistent with Paul's use of it in, you know, such and such letter. And beloved, I'll just tell you, that's dumb. I mean, I'm not trying to be rude, but this is where people work so hard to discredit the word that they end up looking like fools. The word of the Lord stands forever. Paul sent this letter to Timothy. We can trust it. We can know it. For centuries, it wasn't even talked about. It was so sure that Paul sent it. So I'm not going to get into all the linguistic comparisons and all that stuff. That's, we'll save that for a seminary class someday. But Paul is the sender of this letter. But here's what I love. Here's what I love. And we, this, is, this is beautiful. Paul, i.e., I'm the sender, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul is also the sent. He's not just the sender. He is the sent. The word apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos and that word generally means to send. So if someone, like a messenger, would be an apostle with a small a, someone who's been sent by another to deliver a message. So I love this, this kind of dual role that Paul plays. He's the sender of this letter, but he's also been sent by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the command of God. So in another way, apostle here is not just a generally he's been sent, but it's the technical term. He's an apostle. He is, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. So this technical term means that what Paul says carries authority. This is not just a letter to a friend. Beloved, this is the word of God to Timothy and the people at Ephesus who inevitably also 
read this letter. So we're not talking about just the letter of a man. We're talking about the very Word of God. This is God's Word to the church, and so what we have herein is both perfect and true. What we have herein is not only perfect and true, it is life. It is the Word of life. As we read these words, we dare not take them in a way that's soft or flippantly, because these are the perfect, true words of God, i.e. the words of life. But it's also like a living Word. What do I mean by that? Well, Brad, you've already said it's the Word of life, so it's the source of life, the Word is, but it's a living Word. And what I mean is, is that when you and I read the Word of God, it's doing something inside us. It's taking, it's using life to excise out death, to constantly be pulling death out of our hearts, to be pulling out death, to be pulling out death. And so as Paul is writing Timothy, think of the, the church in Ephesus as a tree, and he's using the Word of God as a beautiful tool to get the disease out, to get the death out, and so that can more and more and more and more grow and ruminate in the life of God. Why does he bring this living Word? Beloved, because there's something important here. When you hear the phrase sound doctrine, so often, and I've heard this before, people associate that with being too academic. Well, we don't need to worry about doctrine. We need to worry about love. Well, no, that's not true at all. Sound doctrine is not an academic view. Sound doctrine is not merely a reformed view. Sound doctrine is not a conservative view. It's all those things. It's a biblical view. More than reformed, conservative, or academic, it's a biblical view. Because doctrine is a system of belief. That's all it is. When we use the word doctrine, it's a system of belief. Your system of belief, my system of belief, should be sound. And they're not going to be sound because we've read the latest sociological book, or we've read the latest this or that political book, or this or that, you know, um, spiritual book. They're going to be sound when we read this book. Read those books. Read broadly. I read broadly. But understand that sound doctrine comes from Scripture. Learning how to relate to God comes from Scripture. Learning how to relate to others comes from Scripture. And we can encourage each other with Scripture. So this biblical view can only be founded on the Word. And we need to remember, God's Word is trustworthy. It is absolutely trustworthy. And it informs how we live, how we speak, how we relate, how we understand. It informs everything that we do. Paul says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God. It's interesting this word he uses right here for command. It stuck out immediately to me in my study this week when I was looking at it in the Greek text because that word command is a very unusual word, not the usual word that you would see for command. It's, the word is a, a, a command, but it's denoting the right or authority of the person to give that command. So in other words, when he says by the command of God, he's not merely saying that God commanded him. He's getting at the right of God to command him for this task. In other words, it is God's right and authority to command me. Now again, what he's doing is very pra practical. He's rooting his ministry in the authority of God. In other words, this is not just my authority, Timothy, as Paul. This is God's authority. This is God's command. I'm writing to you under the command of God. And I love how he says, God our Savior, which is very uncommon in the New Testament. Oftentimes, Jesus is associated with Savior, but not here. 
Paul associates it with God, theos in the, in the Greek, with God the Father. And he highlights this, and I'll tell you why he does it. Who is the instigator of salvation? God the Father is. How do we know that? Well, because to the church in Ephesus, when Paul writes a letter directly to the church, he says in the opening chapter that God saved us in Christ or chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. So Paul is reminding Timothy by saying God our Savior that God is the instigator of salvation. What did The Father is the one who sent the Son. So the Father chose His people and the Son, and we're, we're getting at one of the foundations of the gospel. I'll, I'll go ahead and define it real quickly. The gospel being the idea that I love to turn to 2 Corinthians 5 when Paul says, God made him, that is Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. So the Father sends the Son because humanity is warped and lost and dead in sin. And so God sends the Son to do what humanity can't so that humanity, those who are in Christ, those who are in Christ, can have exactly what they could never attain without him. And so Paul is highlighting here that the Father sent the Son so that His people might be saved, which leads us exactly to the next clause. And of Christ Jesus. So Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of, again, he mentions Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, our hope. Beloved, that's balm to the soul. Why is Jesus our hope? He's our hope precisely because He has saved us, precisely because He has redeemed His people. And so when we think about the hope, this is getting back to what is the gospel. We think about the hope of Christ. Beloved, hope is built on, hope in this life, hope in your heart is built on the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. All four components. All four are necessary, because let's think about it this way. If Jesus doesn't live, we're dead. We die. That's it. But if Jesus doesn't die, we stand condemned because we can't atone for ourselves. Okay? So if Jesus doesn't rise, we're hopeless, as Paul makes a great argument for in 1 Corinthians 15. If you haven't read it lately, you should. If Jesus doesn't ascend, we have no advocate with the Father. Do you see how every one of those components have to happen for us to have the gospel hope that we do have? All those work in tandem together. They're one solid whole that cement hope for the Christian. They're the reason that we celebrate and we say Hosanna and Hallelujah. They're the reason why, though he slay me, as Job says, yet will I praise him. Why? Not because we have nothing better to do, but because we legitimately have hope a hope that we would not have and that people who are apart from Christ don't have. If you look at the stats of immorality, whether it's, whether it's any kind of addiction, whether it's workaholic, drugs, alcohol, or, or people who struggle with sex addictions, all those things are people who are trying to garner some type of hope and they're looking for it in ways that are killing them. I've shared this before, but it's worth sharing here that G.K. Chesterton, Chester, Sorry, I'll get there. Chesterton once wrote, even the man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. 
because you understand the fundamental pursuit of peace and hope in the human heart. And we'll look for it any place we can, and there is no rest. Augustine, our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they find their rest in you. That's true. Hope is in Christ doing what we couldn't so that we could have what had been lost to us by means of sin. And Paul is hammering that home. Why? Because Timothy's going to have to cling to his hope with the false teachers. He's going to have to cling to his hope when he's dealing with his own timidity and his own insecurities. He's going to have to cling to hope when perhaps his stomach pains are becoming so bad that it's depressing. I'm speculating here, but it's, it's reasonable that his stomach pains become so hard and desperate that he doesn't want to get up. He doesn't want to lead his elders. He doesn't want to shepherd his deacons. He doesn't want to deal with the widows. And Paul is going to say in those moments, you've got to remember that Jesus Christ is our hope and you are able in Christ to labor. So that's the command. Uh, verse 1 deals with the command aspect. So the divine command. Verse 2 deals with the divine blessing aspect. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is dealing with something here that is true of him, that's true of Timothy, that's true of you if you're in Christ this morning. That they're saying our lives are fostered in the divine blessing. We live under the umbrella of divine blessing. Now, you may be sitting here saying it doesn't always feel like that. Because I can look out in this room, there are people who struggle with anxiety and, and depression, who are in a season of grief and lament, who are lamenting broken relationships, who are, who are dealing with their own life-controlling problems, who are clinging or, or seeking to cling to the Lord and walk in His ways, who say, Brad, my life doesn't feel like a blessing, and mine doesn't always either. It doesn't change the reality of the truth that if you're in Christ this morning, that the grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is yours. And no, we're not always going to feel it. But thank God our feelings don't determine what's true. Timothy here is identified as the recipient, um, and clearly as one loved by Paul, as we're going to see here in just a second, he says uh, to Timothy, so we know who the letter is to, so this is kind of more focused. My true child in the faith and like the word command, that word true there is different. It's not the word you might normally expect. For the, the most common word for truth is like aletheia. Uh, it's not the word here. What the word here implies, it carries the idea of being genuine, uh, legitimate. So in the ancient world, they would use this word to describe the son and heir of a union, of a marital union, that was legitimate. So this carried a kind of maybe a more legal aspect to it, trying to determine who is the rightful heir? Who is the rightful heir of the patriarch of the family? Well, this would be the true son, the legitimate one. It's interesting that Paul uses that about Timothy here. Uh, for one, we might say that Paul sees him as a real son, a genuine son, and we'll qualify that in just a minute. Historically, there's been some speculation that Timothy had a, because he had a Greek father and a Hebrew mother, that his birth was illegitimate. That is total speculation and guesswork by people. We have no way of knowing how true or not true that is. And I don't really think that's the point. That's not Paul's point here. 
it's more likely that Paul is showing a deep love and respect for this young man, Timothy, which would have carried a lot of weight with that church, that Paul, this apostle, is saying, this is my legitimate son in the faith, my genuine son, my true son, a son whom I love and whom I've entrusted with this task. So you can see Paul's love and respect for Timothy. This man now who's been anointed, I'm going to use that word, who's been anointed to do a work, a sizable work among the people of God. But I'll tell you this, when Paul says, my true child in the faith, there's another little avenue to that. Not only is he legitimately in the faith, but he's true in his character. What is Paul telling us about Timothy? This is a faithful man. This is a faithful man, and um, I have confidence in him. But then he qualifies this, my true child, this little prepositional phrase, in the faith. And this is, this is important because on a very minor scale, Paul's, you know, clarifying he's not my biological son. I'm not his biological father. But you know what he is doing? You know what he is doing that is of vital importance? He's saying, Timothy and Paul, we preach the same message. And this is foundational for the ministry of Timothy at Ephesus. Timothy and Paul are not divided. We are not on separate ends of the spectrum. This is my true son in the faith, a descriptor for the way of Christianity. He's saying that Timothy and I preach the same message. In other words, receive Timothy as you would receive me, Paul. Timothy coming to you is as if Paul is coming to you. The words of Timothy will be the words of Paul. Now, I want you to imagine the confidence this has to inspire in Timothy, this young man who now comes to the church to bring the message of hope, truth, and love. And Paul is saying, he's going to preach to you the same message that I would preach to you. But you know what this does for us? As I look at this, what is Paul expressing here? That beautiful, true, real unity that Christian brothers and sisters ought to have, especially a unity around the gospel, that this gospel compels us to labor in unity together as a body, not individuals. We live in a very individualistic culture. See, the gospel is counterculture in that way, where it says the burden is not on you or you or me or you. The burden is on all of us to proclaim the gospel. The burden is on all of us to live out its precepts, that we should be coming back to the Word of God. There's going to be minor uh, disagreements over small things, but there should primarily be a unity around what is true. And beloved, that affects us in evangelism. That's just one example. So when we're starting to evangelize, so often people take the pressure all on themselves, and it doesn't have to be that way. When we're in a gospel community and you start hearing stories and your mind starts firing, hey, I know so-and-so has got a similar story. Let me connect you. Or, or hey, I know we're going to be talking about false teaching at church. Why don't you come join us and, let's, and hear this? And it just becomes this beautiful way where we labor as a community and not as individuals. And there's so much more hope in that. There's so much more freedom in that. There's so much more joy in that. Because now it's not your obligation to save a soul. It's your obligation to plant those seeds. It's your obligation to put a stone in somebody's shoe to get them thinking. It's your obligation to just be faithful in a moment and see where the Holy Spirit will lead from there. And that's liberating, and that's what the gospel does. 
He says, he, he begins with this, or he ends this sentence with grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. When you see that grace, mercy, and peace, there's what I'd like to call gospel components. These are gospel components. These are components, moving parts of the gospel, not only parts that the gospel works, but it's also parts the gospel imparts. These are things that the gospel imparts to us. So we've kind of defined the gospel slightly already. Grace. When we think of grace, what is grace? Well, it's the, it's the loving kindness of God to sinners who are guilty and dead in their sin. Now, it's not only that. It starts there. Grace is also that ongoing loving kindness of God to people who are in Christ who constantly need His interaction to guide them. So when we think about grace, let's just think about it broadly as the loving kindness of God that every soul on earth needs. Uncharacteristically of Paul, he does this in the pastorals. He also wishes mercy. What is mercy? Well, of mercy is divine pity on the wretched who deserve death. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And Christ is merciful to His people by means of His own sacrifice. He wishes Him peace. Irene, it's where we get our word, English word irenic from. Peace, reconciliation won by Christ for those who are far from Him. As I said a moment ago, we look for hope. We also look for peace. We'll look for peace in all sorts of ways if we think we can have some relief on the inside. And we have that in Christ. Paul's telling Timothy, grace and mercy and peace from God our Father, the implied there is to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's laying out components that will define this letter. He's laying out components that Timothy already has. But he's saying, Timothy, I want you to experience this more and more. I want you to experience this more and more. What we already possess in Christ, I want you to experience. In other words, in some senses... I want you to feel it, not just know it, to understand it, not just academically, but personally. And beloved, as a pastor of this church, I can't think of anything I want for you and myself to experience and feel more and more and more than the grace, the mercy, and the peace of God. I mean, can you think of any aspect of your life where you don't want to experience the loving kindness of God? I can't. Can you think of any aspect of your life where you want God just to treat you as what you deserve and not give you mercy? I can't. Can you think of any aspect of your life where you don't want God's peace to reign in your heart rather than conflict and turmoil? I can't. And Paul is saying, Timothy, these gospel components, these gospel concepts we have, I want you to know them more and more because you're going to be dealing in hard circumstances. You're going to have to say hard things to people. You're going to have to be a rock of truth when falsehoods come along. And you're going to have to be the one who shepherds when people are shepherdless. And so it's this beautiful uh, trinity, triad, of exactly what we need. He says that these rich blessings, they come from, of life and hope, they come from the Father and the Son. I love how he highlights this, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And he's doing this on purpose. He's highlighting two aspects of things that are important for you and I to understand. So he says, Father. So he mentions first God the Father. What is a father? Well, what does God's fatherhood look like? Let's ask it that way. What does God's fatherhood look like? That he is compassionate 
as a father, he's compassionate with his children. We see that displayed in the cross. That's how God loved the world. He gave his son. He disciplines. That's hard, but necessary. He brings the discipline that we need as a father. But he shapes as we grow and are sanctified. It's God the Father shaping us into more and more the image of Christ. He protects. He protects us from destruction, ultimately, of the kingdom of darkness. He safeguards. He keeps us, according to Psalm 23, on the pathways of righteousness. And so we have that hope. He highlights the lordship of Christ. Why? You know why? I'm convinced it's this. To remind us that Christ Jesus has the power to accomplish all this and more. In fact, Paul would say he does immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Why? Because Christ Jesus is the Lord of glory. He's the Lord of glory. You know, Paul knew the, uh, the hardship, the difficulties that Timothy was going to face. Why is he saying, why is he giving him, opening it this way, giving him these two verses? Because he's imparting courage for Timothy to commit to this task. He's saying, young man, my brother, whom I love, my true son in the faith whom I cherish, be bold with false teachers. Beloved, don't read that as mean. Don't read that as being mean-spirited, being abrupt. Be bold. We can be bold and be kind. We can be bold and be humble. We can be bold and be loving. He's saying, Timothy, be bold with false teachers. You're naturally timid. Stand in the power of the Lord and conquer that timidity. You can. The Spirit inside you can do it, Timothy. And you're going to have health problems. Your stomach is going to aggravate you. Rise above, take a little medicinal wine, and rise above and depend on the power of the Holy Spirit. And he was telling Timothy, you be confident because you don't labor alone. And beloved of God, do you need confidence this morning? I do. Well, this gives us hope for our task, that we don't labor alone, that we have the grace, mercy, and peace from a Father who loves us and from a Lord who can do it and who has done it. His Word will do its work. This is where we can be confident. His Word will do its work. The Word of God will do its work. Our calling is to be faithful with it. And don't twist it. Don't try to make it more culturally appropriate. Just speak the truth as it stands. Well, this morning we have hope because God is Father and Jesus is Lord. And it seems evident from this letter that Timothy felt a little daunted by the charge given him. I mean, it does. I mean, we read into Timothy probably having expressed to Paul, are you sure? And I don't think there's a man in ministry who's never, if, he's ne if a man in ministry has never said, are you sure? Then I don't know that you've thought about it that deeply. Because I don't know, I can't speak for other pastors, but I can't tell you how many times I feel inadequate for the task, and I think that's the point as I get older. Paul is saying your adequacy, young man, is not in you. It's going to be in the Lord. And so I imagine we all feel that way regarding what God has called us to do. And Paul's purpose in this introduction is to get us rooted in the right spot, right? The world, our own flesh, and false teachers are constantly going to be trying to introduce compromise into the church. 
And they're all going to lose in the end. The flesh will lose, the world will lose, and false teachers will lose because Christ has conquered at the cross. That seals it. And so if you're in Christ this morning, you are loved deeply and redemptively by a good Father, and you will live under the lordship of one who can save as far as the curse is found. And that is something to give us hope. Please pray with me. (coughs) Father, your word is powerful. It renews and strengthens. It gives us grace beyond grace and gives us mercy and hope, salvation. Thank you. Thank you for the power of the word here. May we live it. May we hope in it. As it transforms us, God, may the world see it. And may we constantly be bringing truth to bear on the lies that creep in. And may we love the world enough to be honest. May we love you enough to stand firm. And may we love your strength enough to be free to be weak. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.